So, uh, what happens for you when you hear these things? I want to clap. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hug. <laughs> a lot of what she said really resonated for me. Like I found myself thinking a lot of the same things that you talked about, mm-hmm. especially when you were talking about, you know, um, uh, being exposed to Buddhism for the first time, mm-hmm. things like that. I really liked what you had to say about like the frustration and anxiety and stuff around the practice sometimes that I can arise. And it's sort of like this, it almost seemed like you're saying like a solution to that is the confidence in the practice and that it works. And it made a lot of sense that sometimes I have trouble just getting on the cushion and think it is because I feel like it's, I lack that confidence sometimes. Like, oh, I just, like, oh, it's going to be a waste of time or something to me to, for me to, well, understanding what right practice is is not a small thing. Yeah. You know, so you probably all know I'm teaching a retreat the end of April and May, yeah? And, you know, obviously this is going to be themes that we'll talk about for the whole time that we'll be on retreat. But one thing that happens for people is, is that they get really fixated about what right practice is. And so on the cushion, already you've got a sense that practice is about sitting on a meditation cushion. What do you do for work? Um, <laughs> I inspect people to see if they're venting stuff they're not supposed to. Okay. So, do you spend a lot of time on in the field? Yes. Okay. Well, a lot of people spend a lot of time sitting, you know. So, when a person spends a lot of time sitting and sitting in front of a computer, you know, they don't need to go home and spend more time sitting. But because people have this really narrow view about what meditation practice is, then sometimes what happens is, is that the frustration and the resistance that we have is not only because we're not willing to do practice, but because the practice that we're doing is actually not the practice that we need to be doing. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And so what's helpful is to get a sense of well, what practice actually is and then figure out what's actually helpful. Because sometimes it is incredibly helpful, you know, come hell or high water just to sit and to have a particular posture and time and no matter what comes up, just to, to be dedicated to that. Because, you know, you want to, you don't want to. You know, so the person who gave me a ride home today from my dad, he's an, he's an AA. And he says in the statements in AA is, you go to meeting if you want to, if you don't want to, and if you're not sure. And he said, well, the same applies to meditation. You meditate if you want to, if you don't want to, and if you're not sure. <laughs> but the, the thing is, is, is that what needs to be careful is, is what we actually understand to be meditation to be. Because, you know, sometimes, like I've, I've seen people, you know, they're, they're, they're so um, in such a turmoil because on one hand they do have confidence that practice works, but what they're doing to themselves is actually putting the, the, the good things in opposition to the things that actually need another approach. And so they're fighting against themselves rather than actually getting everything on the same team, you know. And so it's helpful to have a sense of, you know, what actually is happening and what, where the resistance is to begin to see, well, what's actually a useful response, you know. And I can't just say, well, because it'll be different, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, a question came up for me towards um, towards the end of your talk about when we were talking about um, uh, 
dismantling some of the traditional structures and kind of rebuilding them anew. Um, and the question was, uh, do you think there's a greater potential for that in, in, in the West, in the United States, since there isn't this, um, you know, thousands of years of tradition? Absolutely. And in fact, that's the reason why I want to go to California. Because as much as I love the mountains, Colorado Springs is not renowned for its most progressive <laughs> understanding <laughs> of the interface between the spiritual world and one's emotional life. They've got such big churches. <laughs> Well, you guys can invite me back whenever you want to. Could you speak a little bit more about something that struck me that when you said, and I know I probably won't get it quite right, like you said it, but coming from the good within us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the patience we should have with ourselves Mm -hmm. and you were saying about coming from that point of awareness Mm -hmm. I believe can you expand upon that? I mean these are really important points really really important points and I don't know that they'll have enough time but we'll see what we can do I was just spending a a time with a friend and he used the image with his students because he's a teacher you know that if you were if if you were drilling for water okay and you had a sense that underneath the surface was this endless cesspit, okay? It would really reduce your willingness to drill, yeah? Well, there's a way in which that's actually what we think about ourselves. You know, we think that there's this thin crust over this endless cesspit. And so we're not willing to actually do the work to realize that the mock that we experience is actually a thin layer underneath a or over a phenomenal sense of vast, open, spacious goodness, okay? And so this is an endemic in our, in our society, the fact that we feel that we're basically bad, or basically wrong, or basically not okay. Well, the essential nature of our mind is luminous. You know, the things that we have to deal with, they are like clouds passing over. They're not the real thing. It's not what's there when it all falls apart. It's the stuff that can be dismantled. So to actually understand that, not just as words or poetry or some kind of an affirmation that we recite to ourselves, but to really begin to feel that is to begin to access the goodness and to access the goodness gives us the strength to deal with what feels like an endless cesspit, which can be what our, our subjective experiences when we're having to deal with fear and anger and resistance and, you know, the whole expressions of desire and how they manifest or longing or clinging, you know, or, you know, revenge, whatever, all the stuff that we experience, you know, it feels like that's the real thing and there is no goodness. It's like it's that forever, Yeah. So part of it is understanding that all of that stuff comes there as a result of conditions. And so there's a conceptual bit of getting the picture right, but then the experiential bit of actually touching it is what's really important because, you know, a person can speak until the cows come home and you still don't believe it, you know. 
So when I was talking about being in the presence of Deepama, that's what I meant, is that you got it. Here was this vast, open, spacious, still, present, loving, peaceful awareness. That's what you got. And so it was like, well, this is actually what practice does, is it brings you to this. This is, this is the real thing, you know. And so unless you've actually touched that, you know, it's hard to imagine it. So that's one of the reasons why hanging out with people who have that kind of a practice is really helpful. Because you get it, like, in your body, you know. Yeah. So a lot of practice is oriented towards uh, relating to the objects in order to bring them into balance. You know, and we have huge kinds of volumes of suttas and discourses and practices that support that. So it's helpful to know right and wrong and, and, and balance and imbalance and move towards balance. It's helpful not to engage in actions which are unskillful. But this is still part of a dualistic way of relating to things, where there's good and bad and right and wrong. At any time there is a good and bad and right and wrong, there is still some measure of suffering, even if it's subtle. Because there is a me here and an it there and a relationship between the two, which is either positive and affirmative or negative. And there's the struggle to try and collect the positive and to dismantle and get rid of the negative. And so one of the things that Buddhist practitioners struggle with a lot is, is that we know it's good to be kind and to be generous and to be wise and to be patient and to be loving and, and to be peaceful and to be supportive and to be, you know, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. But the reality is, is that there's a gap between what we're supposed to be and how we actually are. <laughs> and so then sometimes what can happen is the practice can cause a war where we're in battle with the things that are, are in trying to get them to be what they're supposed to be. And that's not peace, that's war. And war and peace have decidedly different characteristics. Okay? So awareness has the ability of knowing what is. In the same way, a mirror has the ability of reflecting what is. A mirror does not make preferences. I would like to only reflect beautiful things. Okay? Or I would only like to reflect ugly things. Or I'm only interested in this part. A mirror doesn't do that. It doesn't have a preference. Well, awareness doesn't have a preference. It just knows what is. And the ability to move one's attention between focusing on the object and resting in awareness is where this whole part of practice opens up where one can see on that level it actually doesn't matter what it is that one's experiencing. So, you know, I was just about jumping up and down and shaking people when we were talking about the third foundation of mindfulness because in the Satipatthana Sutta, you know, it talks about all the different things that you can experience. A mind of lust is known as a mind of lust. A mind of anger is known as a mind of anger. There's no drama. There's no story. There's no strategy to change it. It's just known for what it is. And that's the brilliance of the teachings is that they have both components, the ability to change our circumstances in order to optimize positive conditions and the ability to open up our field of attention so that we can just be with things as they are without asking them to be different in any way, shape, or form. 
And so for me, in my life, you know, part of the learning that I've had to do is when do you do what? When do you make effort in order to change the conditions? And when are you in a place where you can just open up and be with it as it is? And so for me, one of the ways that I can tell is whether or not I'm keeping the precepts in a way that is congruent with my values and my integrity. If I'm not, you know, if I'm dumping, or if I've internally imploded, so it's not that I'm hurting somebody else, but I'm hurting myself, that's an indication that I'm not handling what's arising skillfully enough to do that. So then I need to decompress enough to have enough space and ground in order to be with what's present in an open, spacious way where I'm not doing something which is unskillful. Obviously, you know, it, it's not easy. You know, this is, this is part of what my learning in, as a meditator has been, you know. But that point about resting in awareness, what is awareness, it is so important to get that. Because that's where the whole thing shifts from just me trying to be a good meditator, to have a good life, to have an experience of very profound freedom. And with that sense of awareness also comes that boundless sense of love that absolutely is not based on conditions. It is the reality of what's there when the other things fall away. So what, what is really important is to begin to get a real sense of what one's motivations are. And the only way one can know that is by willing, giving oneself permission to make mistakes. Okay? So the way we learn is to make mistakes. That's how we learn. So to understand what one's motivations is, is it really genuinely compassionate? Or is there some aspect of just not wanting to bother? Now, it's not a bad thing to know that one doesn't want to bother. But what then is helpful is to have a compassionate response to that. Because if we come to that with a sledgehammer, that doesn't help. You know? And also, you know, it's like there's certain things that just require a huge amount of spaciousness and resting. There's certain kinds of processes, like I'm in one now, you know, where I've transitioned from England. I've lived there for 20 years, and I've come to this country. It's the first time I'm living here. You know, I've just left a community I've been part of for 20 years. You know, my whole world is totally different. I'm dealing with widgets and computers and laptops, and I'm living on my... I mean, every, every you know, it's just like I'm riding a bike. I mean, it's just like things that I just have never done as a nun, you know. And what I need is just an infinite amount of space where it's like I'm not forcing myself to be clear or focused, but I give myself a wide berth and take the care that I need and go spend as many hours a day as I can muster with the rocks. And there's something about the rocks. It's like being, being a newborn on the belly of mother. 
You know, they just hold me. And whatever it is that I'm feeling, it's okay. And it's not like I'm practicing with it or focused on it or anything. I'm just putting myself in space where the whole thing is doing what it needs to do. But it doesn't look like practice according to what we decide practice to be. But it's exactly what's needed. So part of the skill is being able to figure out, you know, what's actually needed. And it will be different depending on what's going on in our lives. So I spend time sitting every day. You know, I've got a shrine and I sit. But the big thing that happens for me is hanging out on the rocks. And I run. I mean, I run to those rocks. (laughs) I just love those rocks. Does that help? Yeah. And that's also one of the reasons why having somebody who's maybe a little bit more experienced in meditation is helpful. Because sometimes we think harder, harder, harder still, harder, best, you know. And actually what the meditated person who's been meditating says, way, way, way gentle. You know, just a totally different approach is needed here. And you wouldn't necessarily come up with that yourself, you know. Well, it's been quite an evening, and I certainly appreciate all your interest and your care in coming tonight. Thank you.